All right. Let's gather back together. Thank you guys for being here. I think we might have escaped the rain, but we will not escape the mugginess. I can promise you that. And I have an umbrella just in case to, uh, so my hair doesn't get messed up. Uh, so we're going to look at Mark chapter 13 for as much time as the Lord allows us this morning. A very important chapter, a very exciting chapter, uh, a chapter that at the time of Jesus's teaching, at the time of his um, ministry, um, he moves into prophet mode. Jesus is going to begin predicting the future and telling of future events. Now, the majority of Jesus's ministry was based in the present, right? He was calling people to repentance. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. He was revealing realities about the Word of God and about the Messiah and about the, the truth. Uh, this text here, Mark chapter 13, he is going to move into full-on prophet mode, predicting the future, telling about future events. And so it's a very exciting chapter. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Let's pray together, and then we'll read this entire chapter. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, in Isaiah it says that as the rains go forth to water the earth and to accomplish the purpose for which I send it, so does my word go out. We thank you, Lord, that your word goes out to accomplish the purpose and that there is not a person here listening to my voice who will hear your word today that this word does not have a purpose for. We pray that you would take your word and that you would use it to challenge us and to change us and to inform us so that we may be prepared when you return. We ask your favor and your blessing on our time together. We thank you, Lord, that uh, the rain has held off and we pray that you would allow us to focus our hearts and our minds on your word at this time. Give us ears to hear in Jesus name. Amen. Mark chapter 13, uh, you follow along as I read. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will, be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand about what you are going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, it's a deep chapter. It's a good chapter. There's a lot of content. There's a lot of information. I'm going to cover a lot of information, and we're going to break this sermon down, this uh, message, this chapter down into two parts. Uh, you're going to see here in a little while that Jesus is actually referring to two distinct events at two different times. Uh, oftentimes, prophetic literature has what is described as a mountaintop or a mountain range view in mind. That is, if you're viewing, um, let's say, the Colorado Rockies, if you've ever driven through Kansas or Nebraska or Oklahoma in those wonderful flat lands, um, the closer you get to the Colorado Rockies, the larger the landscape looms, and you can see the entire Colorado Rockies at the continent divide you can see them as they are increasing and from a distance those mountaintops look to be right on top of each other right next to each other but then when you get to one mountain you can see that the next peak is hundreds of miles away 
Oftentimes with prophetic literature, uh, the prophet will be prophesying in that mountain range sort of view where one event is one mountain range and another event, even within the next sentence, or even within the next verse, could be hundreds of years or further apart. And so the mountain range view of prophecy should help you to discern um, how it is that prophecy takes place. For example, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 9, he describes the coming um, virgin will be with child, and then he'll, in the next verse, describe uh, that before the child is weaned, that there will be destruction in a particular area. One verse is fulfilled hundreds of years later, while the next verse is fulfilled just a few decades later. That mountain range sort of view of prophecy helps us understand when a prophet prophesies that some view, some events that he is prophesying about happen way in the future, while some will happen immediately. Um, we're going to understand this chapter looking at these prophetic events that Jesus is uttering about two events, the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is fulfilling a prophetic role in this passage. You may even remember that Jesus is often described as the prophet. Moses said in Exodus that there will come a prophet like me. Uh, he calls him the prophet. In John 1.27, I'm sorry, in John 1.21, the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and they asked him, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. And then they say, are you the prophet? He says no. In John 6, 14, the people see the sign that Jesus does, and they say this indeed is the prophet who was to come. In John 7, 40, when the people heard the word that Jesus spoke, they said this really is the prophet. In Matthew 21, 11, the crowd say this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus fulfilled a role of prophecy. You may also know that Jesus fulfilled a role of king and that Jesus fulfilled the role of priest. Prophet, priest, and king are the three offices that God ordains. And in Jesus Christ, you find all three. Now in this chapter, it's often called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse describes the sermon that Jesus delivers on the Mount of Olives. There are three great sermons in Jesus' ministry that are recorded for us. Can you think of what they are? In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have the sermon on the Mount. That's right. We have the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the prophetic sermon of Jesus describing the righteousness of God. In the upper room discourse, Jesus is delivering a message from the priest role. This is my body. This is my blood. He is fulfilling that mediation role in the sermon. And it ends in John chapter 17 with what is called the high priestly prayer. And here in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is fulfilling the role of king, describing how he will come as the king of kings and establish his future kingdom. So there you have prophet, priest, and king prophesied about way back in the Old Covenant that Jesus is fulfilling not all three roles with three individuals, but all three roles Jesus fulfills in and of himself to complete the passage, to complete all those prophecies. And this is called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus prophesying about how he will establish his kingdom. As I said before, Jesus is prophesying about two different times and two different events here. 
He prophesies the destruction of the temple, which happens in 70 AD. And then he prophesies about his second coming to establish his kingdom. Those are two distinct times. And the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and also in the Gospel of Luke help us round out and understand the Olivet Discourse. Because you might say, how do you know that, Gibson? How do you know that these are two different times? Couldn't all of this have been fulfilled in 70 AD or right before 70 AD? Well, some people have said that. Some people have said that all of these events uh, come right before the destruction of the temple, but that's a stretch in my opinion and in other scholars' opinion because of the, uh, the number of, you know, heavens being torn away, the sun being darkened, um, earthquakes, the, the sun and the moon passing away. Um, in verses 24 through 27, he describes all these cosmological events. We don't have any of those cosmological events taking place before 70 AD, not to mention Jesus says that when those cosmological events take place, stars falling from the sky, the sun being darkened, heaven and moon passing away, when all those things take place, then it says you will see the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. Jesus has not returned. Jesus has not yet returned, and so we know that he's referring to two different times. If you still have questions about that, you can see me afterward. Uh, we can also tell that Jesus is talking about a different time when we look in the parallel passage. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, as he sits on the Mount of Olives, his disciples come to him privately, and they ask him three questions while Mark only records for us two questions, the third question that the disciples ask are, what are the signs of your second coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus is going to answer both of those questions, and so we're understanding that as we approach Mark chapter 13. Now that's going to help you understand, because he's going to flow in and out of temple destruction, end of the age, temple destruction, end of the age. And throughout Mark 13, he's just hitting the high points and the summaries. But if you didn't know that he's talking about two different events, you would, it would be confusing, right? Prophecy is often confusing. And so we're going to talk about this message in two parts, this chapter in two parts, covering these two events. Today, we're only going to cover the verses that refer specifically to the destruction of the temple. Next week, we're going to cover all the end times prophecy. When you come back next week, you're going to understand the entire book of Revelation, all right? I'm just kidding. I won't give you that kind of knowledge, but, but we're going to get a glimpse of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he calls his elect up and how they come to govern in Jesus's establishing of the, uh, the end of the age and his future kingdom. That's next Sunday, uh, the end times prophecy. Very exciting passage. So as we begin, as we go back into the text, you might just say, why does this even matter, Gibson? Why should I even care about this text uh, under our current circumstances, under our current economic situation, under our current government situation? Why should we even pay attention to this passage? What does this have to do with me and my time here? There are two reasons why we should pay attention this morning. Number one, if Jesus prophesied about the temple and he was correct about his prophecy, then his prophecies about the end times should give us great pause to live differently today. You live differently in light of future events, don't you? You wanna run a race. Maybe you've picked out a 5K or a 10K or a marathon or something. Maybe you just decided to get off the couch, <laughs> right? You wanna do something and so in light of some future 
impending event, you're going to do something different today. You have a vacation. You're doing push-ups and sit-ups, right? You want to you fit into that outfit. You want to look better. You want to go to the beach. And so in all those ways, in light of a future event, you're planning something and doing things differently today. You want to retire someday. So you're setting aside money. You're living differently. You're saving for a vehicle. You're saving for a house. You're doing something different today in light of a future event. And every single one of you would live your life differently today if you took Jesus's prophecy about the second coming to heart. And if you took it seriously, it would change the way you behave and live your life today, especially in light of Jesus's words in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying the rhythms of heaven and the rhythms of earth, the sun rising every day, Though that seems sure to you, all of that will disappear before these words of mine will, will come to pass. Jesus' words will not come to pass, though everything else be shaken, his word is sure. And so in light of that, with the information I'm giving you today, my hope is that you'll walk away with a greater confidence in Jesus' prophetic words to the degree that you make drastic changes in your relationship with Jesus and in your relationship with the world and orient your life toward the coming of the king and the establishment of his kingdom. You will change your behavior and orient your life to the coming of King Jesus, to whom you belong and to whose kingdom, Peter tells us you are a citizen of that kingdom. You say, no, I'm not. I'm a citizen of the United States or I'm a citizen of another nation or I'm a citizen of this state or my life is embedded in this place. Well, hopefully, at the end of our time together today, you'll see that you're a citizen of heaven, of heaven and that the way you live your life today reflects that other citizenship. So let's start back in the text and we'll tease out what it is that we can see in the destruction of the temple. Start in verse 1. The disciples come out of the temple. Jesus has spent a long day facing off with the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the elders. Starting early in the morning, he has faced off with all of his enemies. That's what we've covered over the last few weeks. And leaving the temple toward the end of the day, Jesus has been teaching all day. His disciples take a look and they say, Jesus, Look at the magnificent buildings that are here. Look at these amazing stones. Look at the ornate designs. Look at all of the beauty of the temple there in Jerusalem. Now I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. Anybody raise your hand? Raise your hand. You've taken a tour. You've started at the Capitol building, or maybe you started at the Lincoln Memorial, right? And you thought, we're just going to see everything. We got one day, right? We're going to go to every Smithsonian. We're going to go to the Capitol, see the White House, go to the monument, look at the World War I Memorial, hang out by the reflection pool, and then we're going to go over to the Lincoln Memorial, and then we may run over to Arlington Cemetery. Maybe you've done all of those tours, and maybe by the end of the day, you are... Uh, 
a little grumpy, right? And you're, you've seen all that, maybe it's hot. Um, that's a long day of touring and sightseeing. But let's just imagine for a moment, uh, if you've been there before, that you are focusing your time on the Lincoln Memorial. And you're looking at the steps. We've been there enough times that maybe the 14th or 15th time I told one of my kids, hey, let's start to learn some minute details about this. In every column, how many ridges are there around each column? How many points? And I think we count 13 ridges around every column. We know how many columns there are on the top, how many steps there are from one rotunda, from one step to the other. We started to memorize all these ridiculous little details um, because we'd been there so many times. Uh, it was just sort of a way to pass the time. And one of the things that we learned on one of these tours of the Lincoln Memorial is that underneath is an enormous cavern. Washington DC was a swampland and the Lincoln Memorial would have never stood up. But if you go underneath, there is as high as 42 feet of cavern with enormous pillars that take place all stacked on top of one another. And annually, the State Department or the Department of uh, Parks will come through and clear away bacteria so that the concrete doesn't erode and deteriorate. Let's say that in the midst of viewing all of those pillars and all of the Lincoln Memorial, maybe on this imaginary trip, you're going through this and imagine that your tour guide whispers to you at the end of that tour, do you see these massive pillars? Not one of these will be standing on top of the other. That would get your attention. You would look at that memorial again and you would think, how could anyone destroy these stones? Herod's temple took 46 years to renovate. This is the second temple. And Herod took 46 years to renovate this temple, according to John 2.20, right? The, the disciple, I mean, the Pharisees asked Jesus, what gives you the right to clear the temple? And he says, destroy this temple, and I will what? I'll rebuild it in three days. And what do they say? It took Herod 46 years to refurbish this temple. It wasn't Solomon's temple, right? Solomon built this glorious temple. And then when the exiles returned under Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they lay the foundation, they build the second temple, and they, the exiles returning weep because they remember what Solomon's temple used to look like, and this one pales in comparison. Herod took upon himself to rebuild the second temple, and he did so with these enormous stones. Some of the stones that Herod built were as long as 44 feet wide, 16 feet high, 11 feet deep, and weighed over 500 tons. It's an archaeological marvel that he could build the platform upon which the temple sat, and that all of those stones Jesus would point to and say, these stones, not one will be standing on another. Verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, just the three of his inner circle, and Andrew, the little brother of Peter, Come to Jesus and say, hey man, when are these, when's this going to happen? we got to know more. You just said that all the temple would be destroyed. And, and so these four take advantage of their relationship here with Jesus and want to know when are these things going to happen? What are the signs that this is going to happen? And then they further ask in Matthew 24, what's the sign of the end of the age and your second coming? Jesus begins to teach them on the Mount of Olives when all these things were going, are going to take place. Skip down to verse 9. He says, Be on your guard. 
These are the signs that it will take place. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. They will beat you in synagogues. You will stand before governors and before kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, where do we see the fulfillment of those prophetic events before 70 AD? You just have to read the book of Acts. You just have to read the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, we see Stephen. The crowd is stirred up in verse 12, and the elders and the scribes, and they come upon Stephen. He was accused of blaspheming and accused of uh, profaning Moses and the law. And so they come upon him, they seize him, and they bring him before the council. Jesus said you would be brought before our councils. And they set up false witnesses in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, verse 15 says, all who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of what? It's like the face of an angel. They looked at Stephen and against all the f- accusations against him, They looked at him and they said his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen, in defense of himself, gives off just a rattling summary of perfect mosaic and biblical theology. And he concludes his theological defense in Acts 7.51 with these kind, encouraging words. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the father, the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and didn't keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was bold and brave and spoke the word of God courageously, though it cost him his very life. He stood in a council under trial and was given words to say at just the right moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment when he should have been in despair and in distress, his confidence in the Holy Spirit and in the Lord was overwhelming. And they stoned him and calling out, falling on his knees, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. Now, saints, that's how you die, right? That's how you die under trial. That's how you die under persecution. That's how you die under a sinful and godless generation giving testimony to Jesus. And he directly fulfills the prophecy of Jesus. 
Paul did the same. Peter did the same. They were brought before governors and kings, beaten in synagogues, dragged off. Paul said, I was uh, given the whip 39 times uh, on an occasion of three times, stoned and beaten, shipwrecked. He gives his entire resume fulfilling Jesus's words here. All that took place before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Look down at verse 14. There are more details. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, what's the abomination of desolation? When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, right? In parentheses, Jesus didn't say that. Um, He's giving us insider language. The abomination of desolation was an intertestamental event. Happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, those 400 years there. And in that event, a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes means the coming of the glorious one. He wanted to rule over Judea, and instead of allowing them to continue to worship, uh, he came in and sacrificed a sow on the altar and desecrated the Holy of Holies. And it kicked off what's called the Maccabean Revolt. It kicked off what's called the Maccabean Revolt. They called him Atticus Epimenes, which means the coming of the madman, not the coming of the, of the uh, anointed one. When that happened, that was the desecration or the abomination of desolation, meaning this, when you see those who are in the temple who shouldn't be in the temple, that is Gentiles, you know at that point that those who were in Judea should flee to the mountains and let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak and verse 17 says alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days pray that it may not happen in winter in this time Jesus is telling them that when you see the Romans executing divine judgment against you, destroying the temple, destroying Jerusalem, don't stand and fight like Judas the Hammer or like the Hasmonean dynasty, like those who fought when the abomination of desolation happened during the intertestamental period. Don't fight against them. If you fight against them, you'll only be fighting against God. Why would they be fighting against divine judgment in 70 AD? Because in a few days from our text here, Jesus will be on trial before Pontius Pilate. And the, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel will say, release to us Barabbas and crucify this Jesus. And Pontius will say, I, I don't find any fault in Jesus. And they will say, let his blood be what? on our heads and on the heads of our children. And so for recompense for the Israel nation's rejection of Jesus the Messiah and for their part in his crucifixion at the time, Jesus will execute judgment in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. And so he's saying, do not stand and fight, flee. Jesus is telling his followers, when you see those who are in the temple who shouldn't be in the temple, get out. Get out of town. It will be a miserable time. It will be a terrible time of tribulation. Why does Jesus single out, pointing out how terrible the 
tribulation will be in describing nursing mothers and pregnant women. Why this reference? Because the Roman army, uh, history tells us, Josephus tells us that Emperor Titus called in two legions of Roman soldiers. For some reason, we don't know why, but the scribes and the zealots came together, holed up in Jerusalem and at a place called Masada, and refused to pay taxes and tribute to Rome in, in the events leading up to 70 AD. 68, 69, 70, they refused. They refused to honor them, and so as a result, Rome was finished with them and their revolt and their rebellion. And he sent not just one legion to subdue them, over a thousand soldiers, he sent two legions in to completely annihilate all the residents, all the Jewish residents of Jerusalem, and to fully and completely destroy the temple. They also built a siege ramp up to the temple at Masada, uh, the fortress at Masada, and completely um, went to annihilate those who were holed up there, but they had all committed mass suicide. Jesus is describing the horrible destruction, and he says this reference to pregnant women and for nursing infants. Because this Roman army would be under orders to destroy every single Jewish person living in the city. And every parent knows the nightmare of something happening to one of your children. Which parent hasn't hovered over the crib of a newborn just watching them breathe? Lord, protect this child. Lord, keep my child safe. And with that first child especially, you wake up, you go into the crib every few hours, are they still breathing? Right? You put your hand, are they still moving? And then they move, or uh, there's a whimper, and you, oh, you breathe a little easier. Something special, something tender about a mother and her child. When a Roman army comes, the parents aren't concerned so much for themselves, but they're concerned for the children that will be ripped from their arms in that destruction. Jesus paints a terrible picture for that day of divine judgment. In verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And it was in that generation, it was almost 40 years before all of those temple prophecies came true. Jesus' prophecy is true. In verse 31 he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just 40 years later, Jesus boldly proclaimed that his words would be true and would be more secure than the sun rising and the rhythms of the earth. Next week, we're going to look into the future prophecy of the end of the age. But for today, what can we do in response to this text? Let me just give you two quick things that I want you to think about. Jesus says to endure trials. Verse 13, look back at verse 13 of Mark 13. He says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures. We are to endure terrible tribulation, difficult periods, 
trials, heartaches, struggles, your Christian life, your long walk of obedience with Jesus Christ will be filled with trials and temptations, failures, struggles, difficulties, challenges, refining fire. And Jesus promises that the one who endures, the one who continues to abide in faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. We call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. That is, those who are truly saints will persevere till the end of their life in faith and can never lose their salvation. 1 Timothy 2 and 3 describe those who walk away. 1 John 2.19 says that they went away from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's 1 John 2.19. Probably every one of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time and have been in church for any length of time can think of a person who made a profession of faith in Jesus and they were baptized and you saw them take communion and you heard them give testimony and you may even watch them do good works. You may have even served with them on a committee or in a Sunday school and after a period of years or maybe decades have watched them painfully, heart-wrenchingly walk away from the faith. It's a terribly painful experience for any of us. Genuine believers will endure. Even those who have walked away can repent and renew their faith in Jesus Christ. As long as there is breath in your lungs, the opportunity for grace and mercy and forgiveness and a renewal of faith can happen. But genuine believers will endure. I had a friend in high school who ran track in his senior year and he earned the nickname Grieve because when he ran, it looked like grief. It just looked like pure agony and he just flailed and his face just was contorted just watching him run, we just go, oh, grieve. It was painful to watch Steve run. There's no chance Steve is watching this message, I think. But Steve, we earned the nickname Grieve because to his credit, he ran with all of his effort, but he always finished strong. He always hit the finish line strong. No matter how much pain it caused him, he always endured. And if you're here today, or you're hearing my voice, if you can grieve and persist with what little faith you have, Jesus said it just has to be sufficient as a mustard seed. If you can persist, however small your faith is, however stressed it currently is, take comfort knowing that your mustard seed faith counts as endurance. You can get through the current trial that you're in. It may not always look pretty, but keep the finish line in mind and endure. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 20, quoting from the prophet, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That is, if your faith 
has very little flame left and it just looks like the, 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 the smoke barely rising from an extinguished flame, Jesus will gently take that wick of faith and fan it back into flame as you endure. He, he will not snuff that out and cast you out. There is hope if you are in faith. Today, if you're tempted to bail on your faith, if you're tempted to bail on all that you've previously sacrificed and suffered for and endured and given testimony for, persist, endure, maintain, abide, do not neglect gathering with the saints. Satan wants more than anything to isolate you and to cause you to fall away. Your presence here is a testimony to your desire to finish well. Come rain, humidity, God help us. Come discomfort, come trial, come persecution. Let us all, by the grace of God, endure. Maintain faith. The second concluding application from this text is take Jesus at his word. Take Jesus at his word, especially when it comes to future events. Next week, we look at Jesus' second coming and the establishment of his kingdom. And I want you to see here that if he was spot on in all the details about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, you better believe that he's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to come on the clouds. He's going to call his elect and that he, we will rise to meet him in the air and that we will reign with him forever. And based on his sure word of prophecy today, you have to live and order your life based on the future reality of Jesus' second coming. Stop basing your life on our current reality. Stop basing your life on your current circumstances. Stop basing your life on the ebb and flow and the ins and outs and the highs and lows of a, of a culture that has lost its mind. You pay close attention to the voice of God. Tune out the voice of the world and live your life as though you were a citizen of a coming king. You will live differently today if you take Jesus' words seriously. And for more on that, you've got to come back next week, all right? Father, we thank you for a muggy morning, an opportunity that we have to gather under the freedom that no man could ever take from us. That is the freedom to worship. There is not an authority alive that could ever remove the freedom for us to worship in our hearts, to in our hearts set apart Jesus Christ as Lord and to exalt him and to worship him and to love him completely. We thank you that we can gather corporately for public worship. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in doing so, we give testimony that we are citizens of another country of another nation, and we owe allegiance to another king. Lord Jesus, as the nations rage and the kingdoms are shaken, let us put our hope and trust in an unshakable and eternal kingdom. 
I pray for those who are here today that you would give them the grace to endure, that the faces we see today will be the faces that endure to the end of their life in faith. Would you help them to run their race strong? And would you help us to heed your words about your future coming so that we may be found in you on that day? We thank you for today. We thank you that we can worship, and we pray that we would take your words seriously. And we ask it in the mighty name of the coming King Jesus. Amen. Well, at this time, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And in response to God's word to you today, I'm just going to ask you to come into a moment of reflection, prayer, singing, asking the Lord, what would you have me to do differently? How would you have me to live today in response to your word? Let's sing together.